evening and good day everyone welcome to episode 30 the 30th live episode of ask abhijit so let me see who all is here i can see aditya bharadwaj vineet rkdm abhilash and uh, jeet shreyas mandar dheeraj ojas aditi pushpak harsh pavan arjun Soumya, Vinayak, Padma Patil, Saurabh, Bhavesh. Good evening. Good day, everybody. It's great to see you all. Thank you very much for being here. And uh, thank you for your wishes. Wishing you all a very happy Guru Purnima. So as you know, today we are discussing education. Uh, today is not a Q&A session. Until now, the past 29 episodes, I have done Q&A sessions. Today, it's more of a presentation. I'm going to talk about the education system of India the problems that we have and the solutions that should be implemented so that's what i'm going to talk about today so let's get into it and we will begin with the main question which is what is education and what is the purpose of education right so that's the basic question we have to understand first of all if you want to discuss this topic what is the purpose of education so the purpose of education is to acquire and master the basic skills and tools that you need to be successful and confident and productive and happy and valuable in life and to achieve your full potential in life and contribute your best in developing yourself and your family and your society and your country and even the world so the purpose of the education system is to give you the skills and the tools that will enable you to do these things and for the nation the purpose of education is to provide the nation with confident highly skilled productive and valuable young citizens and future leaders who can strengthen the nation and take the nation forward in the future and ensure a successful and prosperous future for the nation so that is the purpose of the education system for the nation so that is what we have to understand that is the purpose of education now then the question is who are the stakeholders who should be the stakeholders of the education system who must the system serve and to understand this we have to basically ask uh, ask these questions that who is the system actually supposed to serve who is supposed to gain the most from the system and who stands to lose the most from the system if the system doesn't work or if it underperforms and uh, whose rights and privileges are paramount in the system whose rights and privileges are protected and sacrosanct whose rights and privileges take precedence come first and are inviolable so it's very clear that the answer to these questions is that the students are the stakeholders it is their rights and privileges that should be paramount in the education system and also the stakeholders are not only the students but also the families of the students and the nation also the nation is also a stakeholder so if the education system performs well the the students will benefit the families of the students will benefit and the nation itself will benefit so the stakeholders of the education system the people the, the system serves are the students and it is the nation so that is also a very important uh, thing to remember now 
what is the desired outcome of education let's talk about lower education the lower education system so we know that we have these uh, different uh, strata of education system we have the kindergarten or montessori education system uh, nursery junior kg and senior kg then we have the primary education system standard 1 to standard 7 then we have secondary education 8 to 10 higher secondary education 10 to 12 etc so i would like to put all of this into one category the lower education system so what is the desired outcome for a student from the lower education system so basically it should prepare you for success in life which means that first of all it should enable the students to master communication skills how to read how to write how to speak and how to express yourself clearly and unambiguously that's number 1 number 2 it should enable the students to master the art and the science of critical thinking and learning which means you should learn how to ask questions you should know what questions to ask you should understand the importance of skepticism you should know how to find information and where to find the information and you should learn how to verify the authenticity and accuracy of information it should teach you the art of discernment how to discern between good information and bad information it should teach you how to absorb and process information it should teach you logic it should teach you mental models it should teach you the scientific method so that is what is the art and science of critical thinking and learning thirdly it should allow the students to master basic mathematics how to add how to subtract how to multiply divide fractions arithmetic that's all you need to succeed in life you don't need uh, algebra to succeed in life you don't need trigonometry you don't need calculus all that is worthless if you unless you want to be a scientist so all you need to learn is basic mathematics and next the system should uh, the outcome of of uh, lower education is that it should enable the students to understand themselves the student should should learn to understand himself or herself what are my strengths what are my weaknesses and the areas that need development what are my likes what are my dislikes what is my unique personality what are my aptitudes this is called understanding yourself understanding who you really are the current education system doesn't teach you that so this is something that's essential for young children next the next outcome is that uh, the kids should understand their culture and its value so it should teach the kids ethics morality values what is the difference between right and wrong what is the difference between good and bad and what's the difference between success and failure from your culture and your values that's what the education system should teach children next it should enable children to understand their history their country's history with no illusions and no lies it should also teach them the country's geography the lessons of history and what is the cause and effect chain of history that you learn from history the causality which is the most critical part of history next it should teach the children how to understand the world beyond your country and your region which means world geography world history world culture and also it should teach children the basics of personal finance it should teach children the basics of national interest and it should teach children the basics of leadership 
So this is the desired, this is the set of desired outcomes that should come out of the lower education system. Next, what is the desired outcome of the higher education system? So that's a different set of outcomes that we want. First of all, the higher education system should give students, students crystal clarity about what career path is best for them based on their individual aptitudes and qualities and strengths. Secondly, it should help the students develop their personal vision of what they want to achieve in their life based on their aptitudes and qualities and strengths. So it should give the students complete clarity about the step-by-step -step path they need to take once they are out of the education system in order to turn their life's vision into actual reality. It should tell you exactly what you need to do over the next one year, two years, five years, 10 years of your life, if you want to achieve your objectives. So that is a very important outcome that should come out of the higher education system. And lastly, the higher education system should give you the real world professional skills that you need to succeed in your chosen or desired career path. Basically, it should make you ready so that you, you should be ready to be to to hit the ground running. That's how ready you should be. So that's what is the desired, that's the set of desired outcomes of the higher education system. That's how it should be. I'm not saying it is like that. That's how it should be. Now, we spoke about the stakeholders. The stakeholders of the education system should be the children or the students, their families and the nation. Now, who are the actual stakeholders in the Indian education system? So once again, to understand the stakeholders, we ask the questions, who is the system supposed to serve? Who is supposed to gain the most from the system? And who stands to lose the most if the system doesn't, doesn't work properly, right? And also, whose rights and privileges are paramount, are protected and sacrosanct? Whose rights and privileges take precedence over, for, over others? Whose rights come first? Whose rights are inviolable? And whose rights are secondary or immaterial? So basically, you have to ask yourself the question that if a student, I, I'm not saying the students should do this, but if a student were to, let's say, uh, behave poorly or you know do something uh, something mischievous, then what happens to the student? That student will be immediately punished, right? If they if they don't if they behave inappropriately in some way. So they are immediately punished. If they don't perform well in, in school, they, they are failed and they have to repeat a class for one year. And if they keep on performing badly, they are thrown out of the school. They are expelled. Now, my question is this. If a teacher were to perform badly, not teach properly, what will happen to them? If a teacher were to behave inappropriately in, in some way, what is, what is the action that's taken against them? And the answer is nothing. So in reality... The rights and privileges of the teachers and the staff come above the rights and the privileges of the students in the Indian education system. So the rights of the students are secondary or they are immaterial. And also ask the question, who has to follow the most rules and regulations in the Indian system? Who has to face all the bureaucracy and all the red tape? and all the endless procedures. Who has to stand in long, interminable queues? It's the students, not the teachers, not the staff, not the employees. It's the students who suffer the most. 
So clearly, in the Indian education system, even though the students are supposed to be the stakeholders, it's actually not the case. It's actually the teachers and the employees and the staff who are the real stakeholders. Isn't, isn't that strange? So the question is, does the Indian education system serve those whose stated purpose it is to serve? Or does it serve somebody else entirely? Does it serve as an employment generation scheme under the pretext of being a system of education? That's the question we have to ask and the answer is yes. Because the rights and the privileges of employees and teachers and principals and bureaucrats and administrators and clerks and peons and staff always take precedence over the needs of the students and over the national interest. So this system serves as a cash cow. It serves as a money generating machine, a cash for degrees scheme run by people who are interested in personal profits and not in the interest of the nation. So the rights and privileges of the business owners take precedence over the needs of the students. So essentially what we find is that the Indian education system is a scam, which relies first of all on fear. Get a degree or you will never get any job. You will have no employment. You will have no future. Secondly, it relies on scarcity. There are very few good quality schools or colleges or universities. There are very few seats available. So pay whatever we demand. Thirdly, the Indian education system relies on monopoly. Basically, it says that we own the institutes. We are the only ones who can issue the degrees that you need. And without a degree, you're nothing. So pay up. Pay whatever we demand. And lastly, the Indian education system relies upon a government, politician, bureaucracy, business, corporate nexus, which is a small, close-knit, self-serving ecosystem of vested interests that leech off the country and its people and enrich themselves and do not basically give anything back in return to, to the people whom they serve, whom they are supposed to serve. So that is what the Indian education system is, my friends. What it tells you is that most of our career choices are compromises. Whether we become a teacher or a, or a CA or an accountant or a banker or a programmer or a government bureaucrat or a farmer, whatever, it's always because of compulsion. It's because, of, it's because we have to compromise. We don't have a real choice in what we get to do with our life because there are only a few avenues or paths, career paths available to us. For example, Agriculture happens to be the primary source of livelihood for more than for about 58% of India's population, but it accounts only for less than 20% of India's GDP. So it tells you that it is not a profitable industry. It is a highly inefficient industry. It's a very bad livelihood for most people. And yet 58% of Indians are engaged in agriculture because they have no option. So that's the kind of system we are in as of today. So the question then is, how did we get here? Was India always like this? And obviously, India was not like this. So the education system that we currently are laboring under, I call it the 21st century colonial commercial education system. It is 
basically an um, an offshoot of the of the british colonial education system that was instituted during the british raj but before that colonial system we had the ancient indigenous indian education system that that basically has a lineage that goes back many thousands of years and the british destroyed the system in the 19th century so what was the original system like the original indian system so in the original indian system you had basically school uh, education revolved around temples so every town every city every village every locality had a temple and these temples were not just places of worship there were places of education so you had teachers the gurus or or whatever uh, title they would have they would impart basic education to children and then you had uh, higher education in larger temples or viharas and then you had the great universities like like nalanda takshashira uh, vikramshila sharda udantapuri and so many more so it was a very uh, very well structured education system and a system that had been refined over thousands of years that was the original and indigenous education system so the so basically these gurus or these teachers they were fully supported by the state and the community they were an, they were an integral part of every local community they were full time and lifelong teachers for example when nalanda university was destroyed after it was destroyed a 90 year old teacher named rahul shribhadra was still attempting to conduct classes for a few students even though the university had been destroyed and everybody had been killed and yet at the age of 90 plus he was still trying to teach so that was a lifelong career and a lifelong occupation it was basically that's what they did for the life and the the interesting thing is that these teachers they taught for free there was no fees ever they did not ever charge any fees right because the education system was subsidized by the community people would donate money to temples the local temples we still follow the practice but we have forgotten why we do it so people would donate money to temples so that that would support the education system and also the kings and the local kingdoms would support the universities and the mahaviharas and all that so that was the system of education in india it was completely free it was open to all boys girls whatever strata of society even foreigners would come and uh, and take education as we know very well chinese and greek and scythian students used to come into india to acquire education and everything was for free now this uh, there's a question of what is guru dakshina people will say what is guru dakshina they used to charge money a guru dakshina was a once in a lifetime voluntary payment of anything you could you could afford after your education was over so it was a one time voluntary thing it was not compulsory it was your choice and you could give whatever you could afford and you if if you wanted you you did not have to give anything at all so that is a guru dakshina a guru dakshina was not a monthly payment with 20% off if you pay yearly okay there was no such thing the education was completely free and these teachers these gurus would have lifelong relationships with their students and they had a very small number of students over their entire lifetime because there were so many temples and so many of these teachers right and uh, you had different levels of teachers so you had shikshak who was basically a small an instructor who gave information you had adhyapak you had upadhyay you had acharya and then you had the gurus who were the wisest and most knowledgeable of all so this term that we use today guru we have really cheapened it a lot we think that every teacher is a guru what nonsense 
our teachers today are not gurus gurus a guru was something of an extremely high stature today's teachers they pay us they 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 teach us in exchange for money the moment you stop paying them they'll stop teaching you and they have no real relationship with you so teachers are not gurus teachers are just teachers they they are basically service providers they they teach you this false education these fake history and all that in exchange for money gurus were something very different so gurus are not teachers teachers are not gurus gurus never charged money right so basically now let's talk about stakeholders hmm? okay so what is the what was the purpose let's compare these education systems what was the purpose of the indigenous education system of india compared with the colonial system of the british and the commercial system that we have today so the purpose of the indigenous education system was to empower the students it was to provide the students multiple paths to success in their life it was to strengthen the society to strengthen the kingdom to strengthen dharma because dharma was the foundation of society and it was to strengthen india's civilization the purpose of the colonial the british raj system of education was to deracinate and mentally enslave all of our ancestors it basically equated success with government jobs there was only one path to success that was to acquire a government job as a clerk or a peon nothing higher than that the purpose was to weaken and divide india society its purpose was to strengthen british rule its purpose was to destroy dharma to destroy india's civilization to re-engineer society and to impose the english language upon us and it was very successful and the purpose of today's commercial education system that we are all seeing everywhere today it is almost the same as the purpose of the colonial system it was to de- it is to deracinate and completely mentally enslave us yeah it is to equate success with either government job or a very few small avenues it is to continue to weaken and divide india society it is the purpose of the commercial system is to enrich this politician bureaucrat and uh, business owner ecosystem so that they keep getting richer at our expense it is to continue to destroy dharma to destroy whatever is left of india's civilization it is to reengineer society and create these people who are completely deracinated and who have no connection with their culture and it is to continue to impose english upon us so this is the purpose of today's education system who are the stakeholders in the indigenous indian education system the stakeholders were the students their families the community and the state or the kingdom or the country or the civilization the stakeholders in the colonial system were the british empire the teachers the headmasters the principals the staff and the employees not the students not the people right and today's commercial education system the stakeholders are the business owners who are on top then various vested interests who are behind the business owners so maybe some foreign some foreign religious group is trying to fund this business or some other thing some other political agency etc so that is called vested interests so the the vested interests are very much stakeholders then you have teachers principal staff and employees and students don't figure anywhere anywhere in this so this is the commercial education system that we are seeing today so it does not treat students or the country as stakeholders the only purpose is to enrich the business owners 
and to serve certain vested interests whose aim is to basically uh, re-engineer India's society. So that is what we are seeing today. Now let's talk about some problems. We have discussed many problems. There are more problems. Let me talk about one more problem, which is the English advantage. Everybody in India talks about the English advantage. English, English, English. We are so better than other countries like China or others because we can speak English. So it is a great advantage that we have. Well, my friends, this is a, this is a complete myth and I'm going to demonstrate that it is a myth. So basically, uh, the arguments that people give are that English is the language of science and technology. One cannot study science and technology without knowing English. English is the language of modernity. English is a global language. It's the universal language. There can be no progress without English. So that's the kind of uh, that's the kind of arguments we get, not only from ordinary people, but also from our so-called leaders and business leaders and other people. So that's the kind of argument we see everywhere in our society and in our media. So let me show you some examples that bust this myth. Let's talk about Japan. Japan, my friends, is the world's most technologically advanced nation. It has reached, Japan has reached the pinnacle of scientific and technological superstardom. It is the world's most advanced and most high-tech society. It leads the world in every technology and industry. And all education in Japan is in the Japanese medium. Isn't that strange? Let's talk about China. China is currently ascending to scientific and technological excellence. As you know very well, my friends, Chinese products and technology are increasingly sophisticated and world-class. And most scientists in China and engineers in China don't speak a word of English. They don't care to speak a word of English. And all education in China is in the Chinese medium. They are excelling in supercomputing. They're excelling in artificial intelligence. They are excelling in every industry. They are ex excelling in quantum computing. They are about to overtake the US as the world's biggest economy. And all the education is in the Chinese medium, not in English. Isn't that strange? What happened to the English advantage? Let's talk about Korea. Korea is a high-tech society. It is one of the most technologically advanced nations in the world. It has world-class science and technology industries. You've heard of LG, Samsung, Hyundai, Kia Motors, etc. Well, in Korea also, all the education is in the Korean medium. Let's talk about Germany. Germany is Europe's science and technology and industry powerhouse. It has historically been the most technologically and industrially advanced nation in Europe. And strangely, all education is in the German medium. There's not a word of English. Wow. Isn't that strange? Let's talk about France. Vive la France. You've heard of the Rafale aircraft. It's one of the best fighter aircraft in the world. You heard of the Scorpion submarines, some of the most advanced submarines in the world. They have so many industries, some of the world's best industries. They have the world's best nuclear program, etc. Well, in French, in France, all education is in the French medium. They will never speak a word of English in France. Why is that? And how are they able to progress without English? I wonder.
then what about this country our favorite country in india we we love russia don't we russia is a former superpower it has world class science technology and space industries it has world class scientists it has some of the best physicists in the history of the world and in russia all education is in the russian medium so what happened to the english advantage let me give you some more examples my friends of the english advantage there are two discoveries in the 20th century that completely changed the world one is quantum mechanics and the second is relativity and these are the people these are some of the people who were the pioneers of quantum mechanics and relativity max planck the inventor the father of the quantum was german he did all his research in german his education was in german albert einstein was german he spoke german he wrote his research papers in german max born was german niels bohr was from denmark he did not speak english when he was being educated erwin schrodinger was austrian and he he studied in german louis de broglie is was french he studied in french he wrote his research papers in french uh willem wien was german henri becquerel was french wolfgang pauli was austrian werner heisenberg was german arnold sommerfeld was german george uhlenbeck was dutch samuel goldschmidt was dutch paul ehrenfest was dutch and enrico fermi ettore majorana emilio segre they were italians and all of these people all of their research was done either in german or french or italian all of their research papers were written in german french and or italian had these people been forced to first learn english and then try to learn physics then most of them would never have been able to graduate school or college and there would have been no quantum mechanics no relativity no transistors or microchips or semiconductors microprocessors no usb drives no solid state drives you would not have any smartphones or dslrs no computers no smartphones the entire con- computer industry would not exist you would not have lasers leds fiber optics you would have no telecommunications industry these communication that we are having today would not happen we would not be able to make phone calls we would not have any gps any mri etc so all of this that we are enjoying today the fruits of these uh, inventions and discoveries quantum mechanics and rel- relativity it is all thanks to the german language the french language and italian there was no english involved in this so i hope that i have been able to put across the fact that english is no great language it is not the language of science and technology it is actually an inferior language that we have been conditioned to believe is better okay so english has to go this solution to india's problems is very simple it is sanskrit sanskrit is a solution to india's problems sanskrit has to be india's national language it is the only language in india that has the stature of being india's not just national language but civilizational language it has always been the glue that held india's civilization together and it happens to be the most precise the most nuanced and the most scientific language in the whole world Dmitri Mendeleev the father of the periodic table and the most in, immensely influential chemist the russian scientist dmitri mendeleev he basically uh, was deeply influenced by panini's sanskrit and in his periodic table 
the missing elements, he gave them prefixes of ek, dvi, and tri. Sanskrit prefixes. Later on, the periodic table was changed and it was given Latin names. But the first periodic table, the original periodic table had Sanskrit prefixes to all the elements. So basically that tells you that it, even the Europeans recognize the fact that Sanskrit is superior. It is the most scientific language. So India needs to revert to its civilizational language. That would be the right way to go for India. Okay, now let's talk about problems. Problems in India's lower education system. And these problems abound as we all know. We have all gone through it. I'm sure for many of you, the pain is still fresh, right? So what are the problems in India's lower education system? First of all, we are forced to memorize things. There is the, the, the idea of conceptual understanding, of understanding concepts doesn't exist. There is no emphasis on understanding core concepts or solving problems and creativity is, is abhorred. So all you are required to do is memorize, memorize, memorize. That's all. Don't try to understand things. Don't use logic. Just memorize. Secondly, in our lower education system, they expect complete obedience. Complete and unquestioning obedience. You are not allowed to take any initiative. You are not allowed to display any spontaneously. Everything is about obedience. Yes, madam. No, madam. Yes, sir. No, sir. May I stand up, teacher? May I sit down, teacher? May I go to the bathroom, teacher? May I drink water, teacher? You can't breathe without taking permission from your teachers. So this transforms India's children into zombies. Right? And then there is this uniformity. There is no place for individuality. And there are mountains of homework and tons of extracurricular nonsense that is an additional burden on the children. And then you are forced to answer questions instead of asking questions. And this suppresses and destroys creativity and imagination because the only way to learn is by asking questions and we are not allowed to ask questions. So this creates this Pavlovian conditioning of complete unquestioning obedience. It Basically, it turns us into zombies, right? And then the entire life and existence of children revolves around exams. Exams, 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 high stakes exams. And exams are only once a year. And if you fail it, this once a year exam, then you have to repeat the, the, the entire grade again. And especially the 10th and 12th standard exams are especially stressful. They are make or break exams and failure is a disaster. Failure is a terrible humiliation. And then you have all these different boards. You have so many different school boards, CBSE board, this board, that board. There is absolutely no standardization in the country. So if you get a certain percentage in one state and somebody else gets a different percentage in a different state, we don't know how to compare these two. We don't know how these two students stack up against each other. So there is no consistency, there is, there is no rationality in this, in this system. It's just terrible, no standardization. And then you have the three language systems. You have to study, you are forced to study, study three languages. Instead of studying actual things about the world, instead of trying to get some real knowledge and information, you have to study three languages. You have to study Hindi, you have to study your local language, and then you have to study English. What a terrible burden it is, right? And then there is a system of scarcity. There is a scarcity of good schools. There is a scarcity of seats. And then you have reservations. Merit is non-existent in India. 
you may be a very good performer in school but reservations will destroy your life and the and then you have this discriminatory biased and horrible rte act right to education what a nice name it has but it is discriminatory it is biased it is just it is just evil so you have all of this and and then you have coaching classes coaching classes tuition classes this ridiculous commodification and commercialization of education so basically unless you have lots of money unless you can afford it you just can't get an education i mean is that a civilized society we living in and did i mention the fake history we are taught the lies that are being taught in the name of history so these are some of the problems the major problems in the lower education system let's talk about higher education what are the problems in the higher education system well let's start once again with the same problem memorization the once again even in the higher education system you are forced to memorize 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 and in the exam you have to just uh, regurgitate whatever you have attempted to memorize there is no uh, emphasis on conceptual learning on, on understanding concepts on solving problems on creativity nothing just keep memorizing things and then in the higher education system at the masters degree level etc you have these obsolete worthless subjects and degrees what is home science what is extension education what is sociology what is psychology what is gender studies what is political science my question is very simple what real world skills do these degrees impart to students what real world problems can such degree holders solve what goods or products can such degree holders produce what new products can such degree holders create what services can such degree holders provide what new ideas can such people generate ideas that are genuinely valuable that provide genuine value to society so the question is does the country need such services and degrees the country has plenty of problems the country needs engineers and technicians it needs massive amounts of infrastructure it needs software solutions it needs software platforms it needs manufacturing industries it needs so many things and these are the solutions to to india's problems but these degrees they don't solve any of these problems what problems do these degrees solve what does home science solve what does gender studies solve what does psychology solve what does what is political science solve it doesn't give you any real life skills you know if there was a masters degree in cricket in cricket the sport of cricket then they would not ask you to go and practice cricket they would ask you to memorize textbooks and in the exam if you want to get the masters degree you have to write essays and that's how you become a masters degree in in cricket so that is the kind of education system we have completely irrational completely illogical and what is the value of these degrees if you have a masters degree from an indian university it has no value internationally zero value zero if you have a phd from india it has zero value in the international academic uh, arena and then there is the problem of research there is zero research orientation and if there is any research being done it is all fake namesake research the quality of research is abysmal you know there is, there is this website a government website called shodh ganga on which you can go and uh, check out various masters degree thesis and phd thesis it gives me a migraine to see the quality of these of these research theses whatever subject it is it is philosophy or home science or sociology or physics or whatever the quality is abysmal the quality of the indian phd the average indian phd is 
terrible. So that's the kind of research environment we have in India. And then there is this problem that degrees can actually be bought in India. You can buy a master's degree or a PhD degree. And FYI, for your information, this problem also exists in the US. Recently, there have been these revelations that even the Ivy League schools, the most prestigious universities in the US, actually sell degrees. Okay, so let's not get ahead of ourselves and start making fun of India. There, I am talking about the problems in India. There are problems elsewhere too. But yes, in India, there are certain places where you can actually buy degrees, which is, and I'm sure every one of us knows one or two of those places. Some of them have been shut down by the system, but some are still there. That is, that is just sad. And then you have these mediocre, disinterested professors and lecturers. And what about the wasted funds? You have a certain amount of funding that the IITs get. Where does the funding go? In the, if you go to any IIT in India, you will find million-dollar washrooms, million-dollar auditoriums. But if you see the lab, you will see 20, 30-year-old equipment. So the equipment is obsolete. It is not being replaced with new equipment. But the investments are being done in the auditoriums and in the washrooms. That's the kind of priorities we have in India. So funds are being wasted. And in the academic system, if you are a professor or a lecturer or somebody who's trying to go up, then politics and seniority take precedence over performance. So if you want a, if you want a promotion, you need to be good at politics. Your performance doesn't matter. You need, you need to have lots of connections and then you will get a promotion. So basically, India's science administrators are bureaucrats in lab coats. All the money and all the budget of the departments is being controlled by the bureaucrats and by the clerks. The head clerk in departments has more power and more authority than the head of department, which is something you see in every department in India. And the system promotes mediocrity. There are reservations everywhere. No merit. Even the faculty is, is hired on the basis of, of reservations. In the IITs today, less than 33% of seats are available for the general category. Everything else is reservations. This has destroyed the quality of the IITs. And what about the humanities departments? These are leftist, anti-national snake pits. And the sad thing is that even IITs are, are offering humanities degrees in sociology and psychology and philosophy and English, English literature, etc. Why do IITs, Indian Institutes of Technology, have to offer master's degrees and PhDs in humanities? In what way is that technology? So these humanities departments, they basically... Uh, foment these sentiments of anti-nationalism, separatism, Hindu phobia, and they impart Marxist, Maoist, Naxalite ideological brainwashing to their students. And then you have the fact that colleges and universities are political recruiting grounds where politics takes precedence over education. So in all of this system, the students come lowest in the pecking order of the hierarchy. They have the least rights. Their needs come last. Their requirements come last. Their interest comes last. The system identifies and destroys talent and it rewards mediocrity. So this is the situation today in India. So before I give some solutions, let's talk about some other places where education reforms were done. So one of these places is Turkey. 
So after the Turkish War of Independence, which was in the 1920s or something, I don't remember the dates. Look it up if you want. Okay, I, I haven't memorized the date. But there was this Turkish War of Independence that Mustafa Kemal Atatürk won against the European forces. And he was able to create a small unified Turkey out of the debris of the war. And then he embarked upon a spate of reforms in the entire country. Everything was reformed, including education. So before, uh, before Turkey got its independence, it was part of the Ottoman Empire, which had a very uh, Arabic and Persian-oriented education system. You had madrasas and all this uh, religious education, etc. There was no emphasis on science, on modernity, etc. So Atatürk revolutionized the education system. He abolished the use of the Arabic script. He, he co-opted the Latin script with some modifications to, to write Turkish. And... Uh, so that is what he forced down the throat of the country. He forced the country to modernize with the strength of his will. One man forced the entire country to modernize. So he changed the education system. He uh, made co-education mandatory. Boys and girls will sit together and, and study together. He uh, emphasized on science. He placed a great deal of emphasis on mathematics and science. The, the things that I am uh, basically uh, advocating, the same things he was doing, and he transformed the country within a few short years. And the main thing is that he cleaned up the Turkish language. So the Turkish language was full of Arabic and Persian words. So he expunged the language of all of these foreign words. And he imported words from the Mongolian language because the Mongolian language is the closest relative of Turkish. So that's what he did. He changed the entire system and he changed the language itself. So it's possible to do it if you have the gumption and the fortitude to do that. The second place where such reforms happened is, guess it, it's Israel. So in 1948, when Israel became independent, it was a, it was a completely new nation. It was a hodgepodge of ethnic groups. They were all Jews, but they all came from different parts of the, of the, of the old world, from Europe, from, from various parts of Europe, from North Africa, from Ethiopia, etc. And they all spoke different languages. They all looked different. They had all had different customs, etc. So in Israel, basically Israel embarked upon uh, a revival of the, of the Hebrew language. And they ensured that within a few short years, Hebrew became the primary language of, of all the children and all, all the young people. And after a couple of decades, Hebrew was everywhere. It was the official language of Israel and it was adopted by everybody. So this is possible if you, if you have a good leader, a strong leader who can do this. So once again, I'm showing this example of Israel who took a bunch of people who were very different from each other. The only one thing in common was the religion but they homogenized the society via the language while retaining the other kind of diversity that they had. So that's what Israel achieved. Now, the third section about reforms is China. So we consider China to be our greatest rival today. But are we really rivals of China? So China also had a terrible, uh, terrible 20th century Mao Zedong embarked upon the uh, so-called Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, etc. Lots and lots of people unnecessarily lost, lost their lives. Millions of people. The entire country was ravaged and devastated. The education system was in a shambles. In 1978, China embarked upon a reform, a, a, a 
program of reforms of its education system and they started with the basic primary education system so they have this uh, standardized exam called the baotao which is something it's like the indian 10th or 12th standard exam so they started slowly slowly uh, improving the procedures and these uh, curriculum and the practices in their lower education system over the years they improved it refined it iteratively and then in the 1990s when the system was good enough at the primary level that's when they embarked upon the next stages of their reforms of their revolutionary education reforms that nobody in india speaks about so what did they do let me show you it starts with project 211 project 211 started in 1996 so what was this about this project identified about 100 universities and colleges as national key universities and it invested billions of dollars into these universities in the 1990s in 1996 okay when china's gdp was much lower than what india's gdp is today that's when they embarked upon this program this project 211 so the objective was to raise the research standards of high level universities and to cultivate strategies for socio economic development the slogan was that we are preparing for the 21st century we want to successfully manage 100 universities and the outcome is that by 2008 china had about 100 institutions of higher education designated as project 211 institutions because they were able to successfully successfully meet certain scientific technical and human resources standards and they were able to offer advanced degree programs so this is where china's hardcore reforms begin but this is just the beginning right so this was in 96 and 97 then you had program 973 this was called the basic national basic research program it was a basic research program okay so this also was an investment of of billions of dollars the objectives were first of all to develop basic research and innovations and technologies aligned with china's national priorities in economic development and social development secondly its objective was to achieve technology and strategic edge in various scientific fields especially in the development of the rare earth minerals industry so this program has dedicated funding to areas such as agriculture and health and information energy environment etc and it is still undergoing okay now we have program project 985 so this began in 1998 the objective was more ambitious it was to promote the development and reputation of the chinese higher education system by founding world class universities for the 21st century and by transforming existing universities so this project allocates large amounts of funding billions of dollars to at least 39 40 universities in order to build new research centers improve facilities hold international conferences to attract world renowned faculty and visiting scholars to help chinese faculty attend conferences in other countries to to support specific scientific and engineering projects and to meet the urgent needs of the chinese communist party so this is project 985 which began in 1998 and then you had 
you had the C9 League, which also began in 1998 in China. It was initiated through the project 985. So this C9 League is an official alliance of nine universities in China. The objective is to promote the development and reputation of higher education in China. So universities in this C9 League account for about 3% of the country's researchers, but they receive more than 10% of the country's national research expenditure. And they produce more than 20% of the nation's academic publications and more than 30% of the total citations. So the C9 League is called the Chinese Ivy League. And there are a number of universities in that. So these universities were allocated special resources. They have special arrangements of sharing resources. They receive substantial funding for, for national from the national government, from the local governments to build new research centers, to improve facilities, hold conferences, etc. Okay, so these are the most prestigious universities in all of China and they consistently rank today among the best in the world. So that's what the C9 League has achieved. Then you have Plan 111. So this was a program of in introducing talents of discipline to universities. The objective was to establish innovation centers for the purpose of technology transfer. The creation of 100 innovation centers to bring in at least 1000 overseas talents into China from the top 100 universities and research centers worldwide. So this is an avenue, this plan 111 is an avenue for foreign technology transfer of both civilian and military applications. This began in 2006. It established research centers at various universities that support defense related R&D. This is plan 111 from 2006. Then in 2008, they had the thousand talents plan. So the best Chinese students often go abroad for advanced studies and they never come back. This results in a brain drain, something that we in India are very familiar with. So this thousand talents plan was created to reverse the brain drain, to build the size and prestige of China's university system by attracting world-class overseas Chinese talent and also by attracting top foreign-born talent from the world's best universities. So this plan primarily targets Chinese citizens who are educated in elite programs overseas and who are successful as entrepreneurs, professionals, researchers, etc. It also targets foreign-born experts, elite experts, who are like best in their in their category with skills that are critical to China's international competitiveness in science and in innovation. So it has two mechanisms. One is it gives resources for permanent recruitment into Chinese universities, into Chinese academia. And secondly, it gives resources for short-term appointments, which typically targets international experts. So that's what it does. It has three categories, Chinese scholars below 55 years of age, foreign scholars below 55 years of age and young Chinese scholars below 40 years of age. So this program, the Thousand Talents Plan, has been extremely successful in recruiting top international talent into China. Then in 2010, they started the Excellence League, which is an alliance of nine Chinese universities with strong backgrounds in engineering for promoting China's education for future engineers. Then. 
in 2015, you have a double first class university plan, which aims to comprehensively develop elite Chinese universities and their individual faculty departments into world class institutions by the end of 2050. So it's a very ambitious plan, 2050. About 140 universities are currently involved in this. As of today, most of these universities are ranked among the top 500 universities in the world. Many of them are in the top 100. So that's what they have achieved after 2015. And in 2020, they started this, this program called Seven Sons of National Defense. So these are seven public research universities that collaborate closely with the People's Liberation Army. They, they devote at least half of their research budgets to military products. And they are all supervised by the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology of China. So these are, my friends, some, only some of the reforms the Chinese have instituted. As you can see, it's a step-by-step -step plan. They are very ambitious. They have not invested billions of dollars into education. They have invest invested trillions of dollars into education. And that investment is giving them a great amount of dividend today. As you can see, China is progressing beyond anybody's wildest imagination. It is because they did this, they had this ambition from the 1970s onwards. And they planned step by step by step. They built a foundation and then they, they, they created a foundation, then they built upon it step by step, patiently. So that's what they have done. And this is the way you can reform education and create a powerful country. Education is the key to becoming a superpower. This shows you that. These examples that I just showed you demonstrate that they're almost becoming a superpower today is not an accident. It has been planned and implemented properly. And it is all based on education. So many of you ask me almost every day, how can India become a superpower? Well, I just showed you how it is done. Right. So now let's talk about some solutions. Let's talk about solutions to India's lower education system. So first of all, we need to implement free education for everybody. That will eliminate the need for reservations. I'm not saying we need to do it today. As you can see from the Chinese example, it, it takes time. We need to have a plan, a five-year, 10-year, 15, 20-year plan. But the objective should be to be able to provide free education to everybody and no reservations. So number one is that, free education, no reservations. I'm not saying do it today or tomorrow. Make a plan and implement it properly. So that's one, free education. Number two, we need to have a two language formula. Sanskrit should be the national language and secondly, the mother tongue. Education should be only in these two languages. No English, we don't need English. Okay, number three, the focus should be on learning. It should be on learning how to communicate. It should be on learning mathematics and logic and history and culture, ethics, leadership, national interest. That's what we need to learn. That's what children need to learn in the lower education system. The focus should be on understanding oneself. Understand your strengths, your weaknesses, your areas that need development, your likes, your dislikes, your unique personality, your qualities, your aptitudes. The children should be taught how to master the art and the science of critical thinking and learning. The focus should be on conceptual understanding, on problem solving, not on memorization. 
we need to abolish homework abolish homework it is an unnecessary burden 5 hours of study in school is more than enough for children you don't need homework homework is just a means of controlling children outside of school it is not necessary and what's most important is that we need to standardize exams nationwide today you have so many different boards you have so many different uh, exams and there is no means of comparing the performance of students so we need to standardize exams nationwide or we can draw inspiration from the chinese bao tao examination or the american sat system the gre system the toefl system whatever but exams need to be standardized nationwide you can have exams in different languages but the curriculum should be the same the exam should be made available free and the exam should be made should be understanding driven not memorization driven basically you should allow exams to be open book exams come with your textbooks check out all the fundamentals in there but you have to solve problems to get them to get the correct answer so exams should be based on understanding not on memorization these exams should be made available online 365 days a year open to children of all ages so even if a child is 8 years old and if he or she thinks that he or she can clear the 10th standard exam they should be allowed to take it it should be available online 365 days a year free of charge any time you want just like a driving exam it should not be a once in a year horrible high stakes thing which basically puts so much stress on children make it available online all the time take it as many times as you like it doesn't matter if you pass or fail that's how it should be so that would really alleviate the burden of students and and promote excellence in india and the lower education should not last like 12 years or something 10 years is more than enough so basically kids should start by about 3 or 4 years of age and they should be done by the by the time they are 13 or 14 that should be enough and then let's talk about solutions to the higher education system so basically in higher education 90% of the education should be based on skills and it should be vocation driven because most of us don't want to become professors or researchers most of us most children most people they want a nice job in some in, in a discipline that they, they that interests them maybe as 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 a as a programmer or or as a banker or whatever they like as, as a accountant so you don't need to have a masters degree or something like that for that just make all of all of this uh, higher education most of it 90% of it should be vocation driven and skills driven that's it maybe a one year diploma or two years diploma and then you're out and after that you children can go into apprenticeship or internship programs by the time they are 15 16 years old so imagine how much time will be saved in a in a person's life and how much energy they will have when they go into the job market as an apprentice or as an intern so that's the kind of thing that's need to that needs to be done so 90% should be based on skills it should be based on vocational education that's it two year diplomas or one year diploma and then you're out then in higher education you need to abolish the ugc the ugc is an institution that has outlived its usefulness it's about as relevant in the 21st century as steam engines we need to abolish the ugc and replace it with a better modern more transparent fully transparent alternative then you have the problem of the humanities departments 
which are snake pits of leftist and Maoist academics. We need to close them all, sack them all, bring in new talent. Then we need to sack the mediocre and non-performing or dishonest professors, bring in new talent. India has millions of graduates and PhDs who need jobs. Get rid of these non-performers, get in new people who are motivated and who want to do well for the country, right? And it's important to give these academicians world-class compensation, not these stifling small government salaries. We need to create the conditions for a reverse brain drain like the Chinese have done. So we can import talent from abroad like the Chinese have done, Indians or, or other countries, other nationalities as well, doesn't matter. Invite them and encourage these world-class academics and researchers and Indians working abroad to work in India. And we need to free the universities of bureaucratic and political control. Vice chancellors are political appointees. What do they do for the education system? What do they contribute to the education system? What does a registrar contribute to education? Nothing. So why do we need these positions? Get rid of all the unnecessary positions. Free the universities of bureaucratic and political control. Bureaucrats and administrators should report to the professors, not the other way around. And we need to allow the professors, the academics, the heads of departments and professors to own and control the budgets. If this is done, then corruption will immediately disappear. Right now, the budgets are being controlled by the clerks and the peons who have more power and authority than even a head of department. So this needs to change. And we need to make universities research driven. Let world class academics control the direction of research, ensure that research projects are very well funded. That's how India can get ahead in research and development, right? And we need to discard all the anti-Indian propaganda driven, flawed, distorted history textbooks. We need to introduce new balanced, historically accurate textbooks. That is very important because children are being brainwashed by this fake, by this fake history, by this distorted history. And we need to ensure that all new research results are published in Indian academic journals, not in foreign journals. We need to promote Indian academic journals. And lastly, we need to have, we need to aim to have at least 10 universities in the world's top 100 in the next 10 years and 10 more in the next, in the, in the top 200 as well. So we need to identify 20, 30 such universities. If needed, we can start in a few new universities and we need to staff them with a mix of experience and promise. And this has to be assessed and evaluated every 10 years. We need to use the lessons learned, identify more universities for world-class status for the next 10 years. So this is a process that takes time, but it is definitely very much possible it is something India needs to invest in. We need to learn the lessons from China. The Chinese have shown the world how it can be done. So India can also do this. So that in short, my friends, is my overview of the current situation in, the, in India's academic system, the problems that we are facing and the solutions that can be implemented, that should be implemented. Our vision should be to have a powerful India, an India that is a superpower in the next 20 years. It should be an India that, that is ambitious and prosperous, not an India that, that, that basically is a source of cheap labor for foreign countries. 
I mean, we are seeing uh, statements from from high government officials saying that our key strategy should be to make India a source of labor for foreign countries. That is a slave mentality. I mean, that's not the kind of vision we should have for India. India should be a world leader in the next twenty years in every sphere, and it is very much possible if you can if you see the example of China. But it has to start today. because the the 2020s are the decade in which the world is going to turn around it's going to change completely and if india doesn't start now then india will be left far behind and india will not be able to catch up so now is the time to transform india's education system india needs to come up with a comprehensive 20 year plan with the objectives that i have put across and it can be implemented it can be done india has the talent and all that to do it so that in short my friends is what i have to say that's my overview that's my presentation of what can be done in india and education is the key to making india a powerful country china would not have been where it is today if it had not invested trillions of dollars into its education system it is not a waste of money it is not a wasted investment it is something that will pay you back many times more in the future So India needs to bite the bullet. India's leadership needs to show some fortitude and gumption and do the right thing. India needs to invest in a powerful education system. India has the best minds in the world, the best talent in the world. It's time to set India free and unleash the true potential of India. So that my friends is what I have to say. I am not taking questions today. In tomorrow's session I will take all your questions. Any question that you have about the education system. So that's it for today my friends thank you so much for participating thank you for listening thank you for watching i will see you tomorrow and take your questions thank you and have a good night have a good day bye